Monica, that is a terrific uh, talk. And you and Susan really provide a lot of information. You've generated a lot of questions. In our question and answer session, we will uh, uh, we'll approach them. Uh, the last talk in this part is uh, a little bit different from what most uh, courses do. The Washington course has always been focused to some extent on policy. Uh, and one of our favorite speakers is Jeff Crowley. And he's really spent almost 30 years now in HIV policy, starting from his early uh, phase in the National Association of People with HIV, uh, being at the Georgetown Center for Health Policy. And I think most prominently, most of us know him from his time in the Obama administration uh, as the uh, uh, White House coordinator for AIDS policy. So it's wonderful to have Jeff be the only non-physician here uh, who's going to focus on policy. And I think this is a aspect of HIV that we all need to be knowledgeable about. So Jeff, thanks very much. And again, we're very impressed with what the O'Neill uh, Center at Georgetown has been able to accomplish over the last uh, uh, decade. Great. Thank you, Henry. It's um, good to be see you, but good to um, be with everybody. So um, as was said, I'm going to um, talk about leveraging administrative and government policies to improve prep utilization. Um, let me make sure my cursor works. So, so here are my disclosures. Some of the things I hope you to get will get out of this presentation is I hope that you'll be able to list major federal policies and programs that can support PrEP access. I hope you'll be able to describe some of the critical components of federal guidance that define requirements of the USPSTF PrEP recommendation. And I hope that you'll be able to explain why safety net clinics that generate revenues from the 340B drug discount program may prefer to prescribe higher cost brand name PrEP products in place of lower cost generics. So there are many um, prep policy topics that we could talk about, and this is not a, a you know semester-long graduate course. Um, I can't talk about all of these. These are some that came to mind, but right in the center here, I'm going to focus my remarks on questions related to can people access prep, meaning is it available, is it affordable, and are all components of the regimen covered? I don't really specifically talk about health equity, but in an unjust health system with an unequal um, HIV epidemic where we know there are huge disparities with prep access, I think that must um, underlie everything we do. So even though I don't talk about it here, um, I think it should be on our minds and, and we can maybe get in the Q&A about that. So what I hope to do today is really give a talk in three three parts, um, give an overview of the US healthcare system and talk about how we finance HIV public health programs, talk about some PrEP policy initiatives, talk about ongoing and future PrEP policy issues and threats, and then I have a last slide of resources. Now I am going to zoom through um, a number of slides and unlike many talks, I don't want you to get focused on the details. I want you to keep the top line message. And the top line message here is we have a very complex healthcare financing system. And I think some people would like to say there, you know, there must be a better way we could imagine something simpler or an extending prep access. We need something simpler that's more uniform, easy for everybody. And we can talk about that, but I also think we need to think about where we're starting and think about how we build on um, what we currently have. And so that's why I'm showing you stuff that, you know, um, maybe politely is, is kind of a mess. So this is what our health insurance system looks like. Last year, um, about half of people in the United States had health insurance coverage through um, employer-sponsored coverage, meaning they got um, insurance through their job or their dependence of, of a worker. About 15% had other private coverage, and that's really um, people that purchased individual coverage in the market in the healthcare marketplace. 
about 18% of people had Medicaid, 16% had Medicare, 2% were in the military, and 9% were uninsured. And I would say that 9% is embarrassing, it's outrageous, but it's also a sign of major progress. Before the Affordable Care Act was enacted, about 16% of Americans were uninsured. This slide shows um, something that you probably all know. We spend a lot of money on healthcare in the United States. You know, we have the largest economy and we spent 18% of our gross domestic product on health, on health expenditures last year. I'm not gonna go into all the wedges of the pie, but I ask you to look at the bottom. You know, some people say, you know, part of the problems or things that are driving health cost increases in our system is that people aren't sensitive to the prices. They have insurance, they don't care what it costs. This shows that um, individual Americans or account for 11%, out-of-pocket spending 11% of national health expenditures. So that's almost approaching 2% of gross domestic products. So that's a lot of, of spending that individuals themselves are paying. So I've done something, so. Whoops, my, my apologies. Now uh, I wanna just talk about who these programs are and what they cover. So private insurance coverage covers about 216.5 million people. Um, as I said, that's probably half the population. That estimate's from the Census Bureau, and that's um, really any people that were covered during a given year. So people churn in and out of private coverage, so it's not an, at any point in time. Medicare covered about 62.6 million people last year. You know, this is our federal program for seniors, people age 65 and plus, working age people with disabilities. And because of the comprehensive na nature of Medicare, fewer than 1% of seniors are uninsured in this country. Now, Medicaid is our safety net for low-income Americans, covered 75.9 million beneficiaries in March of this year, plus there are an additional 6.9 million children covered in the Children's Health Insurance Program. Now, Medicaid and CHIP are intended to be counter-cyclical. That means when things are good, people gain private coverage and, and uh, Medicaid and CHIP enrollment goes down. When things turn bad, enrollment goes up. And uh, I would note that during the, the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen um, a 16% increase in Medicaid CHIP enrollment. That's virtually all um, through Medicaid, not CHIP. But 11.5 million more people are covered since the, the, the pandemic started. Now, the way Medicaid works is it's a, a voluntary program with feds and the state governments. Feds set the minimum standards as far as who the states must cover, services they must cover, and both in terms of eligibility and services, states can go well beyond that, and they do. And states are entitled to open-ended financing. So if states are following the rules of the Medicaid program, the federal government must pay its share of their bills. Now, traditionally, it's covered low-income children, parents, seniors, and people with disabilities. It's been long been a major source of financing for um, HIV-AIDS care. It's the largest payer for nursing home care and community-based long-term services and supports. But the Affordable Care Act, as you may know, um, was intended to be a comprehensive approach to extending insurance coverage. And we were using Medicaid to cover low-income people. So it created a mandatory Medicaid eligibility category up to 138% of poverty. But you know, when the law was challenged in a really sort of nonsensical um, decision, we're grateful the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality, but they said that the mandatory expansion of Medicaid was unconstitutionally coercive. This flies in the face of multiple um, expansions to the, the Medicaid requirements in the past, but it created a patchwork. So this slide shows that when um, the Medicaid expansion was made optional, the orange states chose not to do it. You see a band along the bottom, those are the southern, southern states, which happen to be states with the weakest healthcare infrastructure and a disproportionate um, burden of the HIV epidemic. 
Now, on top of our complex insurance system, we have other programs. So often we're trying to fill other gaps and um, we have a number of programs. This is not an exhaustive list, but programs like the health centers program, the critically important Ryan White HIV AIDS program, um, the Indian health service programs, um, substance abuse mental health services administration programs, um, administration for developmental disabilities. These um, programs all perform um, critical roles, but they're discretionary, meaning unlike insurance, which provides a, a benefits package and you're entitled to, to coverage when services are medically necessary. Here, the programs stretch as far as they can, but they can run out. And then of course, there are other um, programs um, that are part of the public health response at CDC, NIH, FDA, elsewhere, but they, don't, they either don't provide um, direct funding for services or if they do, they do so in only very um, limited ways. So this slide is intended to show that the Affordable Care Act had a, had a big impact. And I just ask you to look on the right, shows the uninsured. So uh, this is actually a sign of major progress that people living with HIV have roughly the same uninsurance rates as the general population. Depending on how far you go back, if you went back to 2012, so after the ACA was enacted, but before the co coverage expansions took effect, people with HIV were about 50% more likely to be uninsured. But if you go back further, people with HIV were twice as likely to be uninsured. This slide shows the difference between coverage for people with HIV and non-expansion states on the left and Medicaid expansion states on the right. And I ask you to focus on two things. People, in the not, people with HIV in the non-expansion states were three times more likely to be uninsured. And in the Medicaid expansion states, Medicaid plays a much bigger um, role in, in the coverage pie than in non-expansion states. Here, uh, look at coverage status of people with HIV by uh, private, um, by um, household income. And there's two points I'd like to make. The most highest income people are more likely to have private coverage. Lowest income people most likely have Medicaid. You might think that this is a challenge that um, um, low income coverage is bad. There are certainly weak programs and problems with Medicaid, but I also argue that um, the comprehensive nature of the benefits package, the um, scope of the financial protections, the network of providers and other factors often make Medicaid a better program for low-income vulnerable populations, including people um, with HIV, but also at risk for HIV. This slide shows that nearly half of people with HIV um, rely on Ryan White, um, but it also shows if you look at by coverage status, people with Medicare, the, the program for low-income people with the best financial protections, most comprehensive benefits, 40% of them still rely on, on Ryan White to supplement their benefits. So when we think about PrEP, you know, um, oftentimes these programs provide financial assistance. So the same populations also will, have, will have, probably have unmet needs with PrEP and, and, and need um, supplemental assistance. And this last slide of so like the, setting the stage for where we are shows um, how we finance HIV care and it shows that we spend $28 billion a year on the federal domestic HIV response. If you look on the left, roughly two thirds is Medicaid and Medicare. Then going around, we have SSDI, SSI. Those are social security um, disability insurance programs that provide income supports. FEHB is um, federal employee health benefits. So that's just insurance coverage for federal workers. The Ryan White program, CDC HIV prevention, NIH AIDS research, SAMHSA, um, Veterans Affairs, HOPWA, the Housing Opportunities for People with AIDS program. So uh, a significant um, complex um, financing pie. So at this point, I, you know, I said before, I, I think of our, our fellow panelists, our, our moderator, Mike Sag, because I, I know him, I, I feel like he's screaming, there's gotta be a wetter way. Why are we stuck with this mess? And this, these next three slides are intended to show why we're stuck with this mess. 
This slide and the next one are from Gallup, and they've been polling um, public opinion going back decades. This slide shows about two decades, but it's a nationally representative sample and asked people to rate um, whether their um, healthcare quality and coverage of their own healthcare is excellent or good. It's been pretty stable. 82% say the quality is excellent or good. 74% say the coverage is good. But when you get to ask them about rate the quality of and coverage of healthcare in the country as a whole, only 54% say the quality is good, 38% that say the coverage is good. So people recognize we have problems with our national system, but I think they're afraid that any changes could worsen things for, for them and their family. This is from the Kaiser Family Foundation. It doesn't go back the, the same um, number of years. It goes back only four years, but it's national opinion polling about people, do you want, uh, do you support uh, Medicare for all? And 53% of respondents um, say they do support Medicare for all, but there's no clear consensus. 42% uh, oppose this. So the fact that there's no clear consensus really means that we're, we're, we're stuck and we're not able to enact um, large structural change. So now we get to PrEP. And, and what does this mean for, for PrEP policy? So the first thing I, I want to say is I've tried to make the point that the Affordable Care Act has done a number of things to um, ex expand um, coverage. It placed new limits on out-of-pocket costs, set minimum be benefit and network standards. These are all helpful. The most significant thing it did with PrEP access, though, is it established that um, highly rated screenings and prevention services must be provided without cost sharing. It requires an A or B evidence-based rating from the United States Preventive Services Task Force, or the USPSTF. They looked at PrEP, and they gave it an A rating. So this USPSDF is an independent panel of national experts authorized by Congress, appointed by the agency Healthcare Research and Quality within HHS, and they conduct reviews of the scientific literature and make evidence-based recommendations for the use of clinical preventive services, such as screenings, counseling services, and preventive medications. When they look at PrEP, this is what they found. They found convincing evidence that PrEP is of substantial benefit for decreasing the risk of HIV infection in persons at high risk of infection, either via sexual acquisition or through injection drug use. And they concluded with high certainty that the net benefit of the use of PrEP to reduce the risk of acquisition of HIV in persons at high risk is substantial. So this matters because the A and B rating means as a requirement of law, virtually all private health insurance and all people in Medicaid expansion plans must get access to um, PrEP when clinically indicated free of charge. So, so that's not the whole pool of, of potential PrEP uses, but that covers a, a pretty large swath. Now, um, the excerpt from um, this um, document that my team produced in March of last year said the following. It, this, this recommendation was great, but we're like, well, what does it mean? Does it require more than the coverage of the drug? So what we said was, before the recommendation comes into the force, the federal government should issue binding guidance that clarifies that the non-medication components of PrEP must be covered without cost sharing as part of the recommendation that standardizes the coverage of PrEP medications to ensure comprehensive coverage and prevents plans from using drug coverage policies to deter enrollment of PrEP users. Models for such clarifying guidance include FAQs around polyp removal during colonoscopies, bracket testing, and coverage of contraceptive methods. So there's a few things in here, I would say. First off, the studies that the USPSTF looked at, including IPREX, were about comprehensive PrEP regimens. They weren't showing that PrEP was effective if you just dispensed the drug. Two, TDFFTC was the only approved agent that they, that they reviewed. We have more agents now, so it's unclear what, what this recommendation means for, for other drugs. And while we're asking for them to do something, 
you don't want it to seem as though we're sort of advocating something they've never done. And we've given examples about how this is consistent with how um, federal policy has, has worked in the past. Whoops, I've done something with my cursor. I apologize for that. So um, in July of this year, um, the Biden administration did issue FAQs. Um, enforcement action began or was possible starting in September. And what they said is, is the following. They said that plans must cover free of charge baseline um, and monitoring services that includes HIV testing every three months, STI screening consistent with CDC guide guidelines. Plans cannot restrict individuals from continuing or restarting PrEP as long as their own healthcare provider determines that PrEP is um, medically indicated. They um, said that um, reasonable medical management is permitted to give preference to a specific medication, such as by offering one without cost sharing and posting cost sharing for others, but plans are required to accommodate any individual for whom a particular PrEP medication, whether it's generic or brand, would be medically inappropriate as determined, and this is important, by the individual's own healthcare provider. This requires plans to have a mechanism for a waiving or otherwise, otherwise applicable cost sharing for the brand or non-preferred version. It also requires them to have an easily and timely exceptions process for plans that limit PrEP services. And the example they gave here, what that means is that in the case of someone re receiving um, an um, excuse me, and an HIV negative test result and wanting to start on uh, a PrEP regimen, they have to get through the exceptions process on the same day. So what services are required to be covered? And it lays it out, but again, the, the emphasis here is what does the CDC clinical guidelines say? Office visits must be covered when it's the primary purpose of the office visit, but HIV testing, hepatitis B and C testing, creatinine testing, pregnancy testing, STI screening, um, you know, including three-site screening. Um, it's really, uh, what, what do the, the CDC guidelines say and adherence counseling? So um, this slide is just intended to say, you know, rights have meaning when, when laws are enforced and you as providers have a role to play. Um, this gives, you know, because we have so many different healthcare programs information about where you can go to help your patients if um, plans are not complying with the law. The next Policy initiative I want to mention is the 340B drug discount program. It's an important source of revenue for, for safety net clinics. It was established in 1992 by Congress, and it requires pharmaceutical manufacturers to provide drugs at a discount to eligible clinics and hospital bills. These clinics, um, which are known as covered entities, can receive reimbursement from 30-party payers, including Medicaid and private insur insurance, at the higher usual and customary rate. So the difference and what they receive as reimbursement compared to what they paid is considered program income. And they're allowed to use this program income consistent with the purpose of the, the program for which they qualify to enhance services, um, invest in their programs and, do, and provide more for uninsured people. And these covered entities, eligible covered entities include health centers, Ryan White HIVH program grantees, STI clinics and Title X family planning clinics and others. This just shows um, some, some types of, of of clinics that qualify, but I would highlight two things here. FQHCs are our health centers, and it shows that very few, a small share of overall health centers actually receive income from 340B program. And HIVAs, which I presume to be Ryan White um, carrot grantees, only a small um, share of overall clinics receive or partic currently participate in the 340B program. Now, um, the 340B generates significant revenue that supports um, services. So health centers, sexual health clinics, now there's can and do use um, program income for PrEP services to cover laboratory services, provide PrEP to the uninsured, 
um, offering um, case management and navigation services and more. I would point out though that HRSA guidance doesn't permit um, clinics that are qualified as, as covered entities solely on the basis of receiving Ryan White HIV AIDS program funding to provide PrEP services because HRSA policy interprets the purpose of the Ryan White HIV AIDS program to serve people with HIV. Some of these clinics would like to provide PrEP services and they've argued that a more expansive um, consideration of the purpose of their program, such as to comprehensively respond to the HIV epidemic in their community is possible. It's really unclear whether um, they really could um, through administratively change their guidance, but also since some of the places with the biggest gaps in, gaps in PrEP services are places with lowest HIV viral suppression, it's also unclear if this kind of change is, is um, desirable, but that debate is, is out there. The next thing is um, a, a number of speakers, Dr. Scott, Dr. Buckbinder mentioned the Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative with the goal of reducing HIV transmission, mentioned that PrEP um, access was a core part of this. A strategy to achieve this is um, they said they're going to invest more in health centers to get health centers to do more, both in terms of prevention, HIV prevention and care. In 2020 and 21, Congress um, increased new funding and significant funding um, of this new Ending the Epidemic Initiative funding went to health centers, 50 million in 2020, 102.25 million in 2021. In March of this year, HRSA reported on things they've done with this money or the, the early outcomes, and they found that 50,000 people were prescribed PrEP at health centers. This is, I think, a respectable start, and I think we all hope that that, that um, grows over time, so it's a bigger source of, of PrEP access. Another component of this initiative was the Ready, Set, Prep program. It was announced as a partnership with Gilead Sciences. At the time, they're the sole manufacturer of approved prep medication. They promised to donate up to 2.4 million bottles of medication a year through 2030 to CDC to distribute to uninsured people at high risk, covered both um, TDF, FTC, uh, and um, TAF, FTC. And the intention was to create a new pathway for prep access for people without drug coverage. To date, though, the program really hasn't um, reached that many people. It was intended to serve up to 200,000 people. It served fewer than 2,000. I mean, I think there's some reasons related to just the timing, the scale of the program, COVID fallout um, has diminished it, but they're really large shortcomings with the program. For people who lack prescription drug coverage, most of whom lack insurance coverage, the program only provides drug. It doesn't provide the other services related to the PrEP regimen. But another um, reason may be that, you know, Gilead's own patient assistance program has been fairly generous and it may have been more attractive, but also a lot of the case managers and benefits counselors that assist people, I'm sure are more familiar with that. Um, it was also a structure to operate through commercial pharmacies and may have missed an opportunity to, to work uh, more closely with health centers and other public health pharmacies. Hopefully, though, we don't just give up on this and maybe that there can structural changes can be made to make this um, a more um, beneficial contributor to overall PrEP access. So now I just want to talk about a couple of threats to, to the future PrEP policy. I've mentioned that the 340B program is a significant source of revenue to safety net clinics. The pharmaceutical manufacturers have never liked it and they've thought ways to, sought ways to narrow the program. As part of the ACA, Congress expanded the program to cover more types of hospitals and that only increased the angst or um, you know, opposition to the program. Um, in recent years, numerous efforts have been made to fundamentally alter the program. So far, none have been successful. A lot of the concern has been over the growth of contract pharmacies and just the volume of discounts that manufacturers are, are giving to these contract pharmacies. And, you know, not getting to the nuance of this, but there was a court decision last year of August and following that six manufacturers just stopped providing drugs, uh, discount drugs to the program. 
And um, this year, HRSA began enforcement action. Legal um, questions have been raised over whether manufacturers can um, unilaterally change conditions of the drug discount program and whether HRSA can use its enforcement authority. And these issues remain um, in the courts and are unresolved. Bipartisan legislation has been proposed to, um, to called the Protect 340B Act to protect these, these 340B covered entities. Now there is a, a complex issue, you know, these safety net clinics depend on 340B program income, and it really complicates the picture when it comes to gen generic PrEP access. As we know, generic PrEP net clinics don't receive the same level of program income from generics. And while I think there's a reasonable debate over which PrEP products are should be prescribed, um, since most of the clinics serving um, PrEP eligible people could lose significant income, I'm not sure that the prescribing decisions are being based solely on clinical criteria. And I think that fear over like the potential impact of prescribing more generics has really altered just the, the broader HIV stakeholder community's engagement. On a broad debate we've been having now over um, drug prices and price negotiation. I do not have the answer to this. But I would just say as an HIV community, including providers, but not just providers, you know, many of us can see that, you know, the foundations on which we're building a, a HIV financing program are vulnerable. You know, if we're, we're counting too much on 340B program income and the manufacturers are trying to change it, generics and other things could come along. I think we need to step back and say, you know, can we keep this going? Are, are we enhancing our vulnerability in the future if we don't think about alternative financing approaches? We need the money that comes in through uh, 340B program income, but maybe we need to find another way. And again, I don't have the answer, but I would just reflect on one other thing. The Medicaid program has expanded over time and it didn't always cover all poor children. Congressman Henry Waxman wanted to, to cover poor children. I mean, he and others. But when you looked at the cost of doing this, the cost seemed exorbitant. What did he do? He took 20 years to phase in coverage expansion. So, um, you know, a decade or so ago, we finally got to the point where all low-income children in, in this country have an entitlement to Medicaid. I'm just saying, even if they're tough solutions or they take a long time, we might want to think about long-term solutions. Now, looking ahead, um, you know, the White House is expected to release a new National HIV AIDS strategy on World AIDS Day. I'm looking forward to see, seeing what's in that. I sort of pinched myself, but honestly, that we're still talking about an AIDS strategy. Um, I would remind all of you, though, that I think one of the major challenges we have is to keep the American people and our elected officials invested into our fight ending the HIV epidemic, especially as the size of the epidemic decreases and the sense of threat recedes. So our success makes it harder. Improving health equity must be on um, the central focus of what we do. Getting more people services, prep services and other covered by mandatory programs, I think um, could, could um, enhance its sustainability and, and private coverage. We love our discretionary programs that are tailored to our needs, but um, when we think about long-term sustainability, I, I, I think we need to think about, you know, getting as many services in, in these mandatory programs. And I don't, want to end on a, a depressing note. I want to end on an encouraging note. The number of people echoed a feeling that I have. There's going to be challenges. I plan to do more looking at long-acting products, but I think they're just one reason that give me some excitement for the future. Finally, I have a slide of some resources we produced. The first is a paper um, that was published in the Landside, a small roll-in, but it's a pretty good overview of insurance coverage and financing landscape for HIV treatment and prevention and some other materials. And with that, I will stop, and I think we're ready for the Q&A.